Talofa, Fula, Malo. Welcome to Pacific Rugby Players Radio. All things Pacific Rugby, all things about us. A place where we take time to talk the big and small issues, share stories and have a few laughs with current and past Pacific Rugby players around the world. So whether on the team bus, driving home from training or on the physio table, sit back, chill and dig down deep on the issues that affect us. Pacific Rugby Players. Here's your host for today. Good morning, good evening everybody. Welcome to another PRP podcast. My name is Aidan Clark. I'm here with our Pacific Rugby Players team to bring to you another educational workshop focusing on life after rugby. Thanks for joining us. We have got a special guest today in All Blacks mental skills coach and manager Gilbert Inoka. Now this man doesn't need much introduction. He's well known as being a guru in behind the scenes. With the All Blacks success in recent years, actually for a long, long time now, he's been involved in over 250 test matches. Gilbert is the man making sure that the minds are in the right place and that everybody's ready to go. He's hugely experienced across all of the sporting world and now I believe also uh, in the business world. Today, I'm really interested to talk with Bert about the challenges that the roller coaster of life brings to players as they consider retirement and then go through retirement. And in particular, we're going to talk to him about the challenges for rugby players right now in the uncertain rugby world when everybody is not sure where this is going to lead, future contracts, uh, pay cuts, future payment levels, um, and even just the inability to have international travel how we used to have it. This is going to be a really great chat. I'm looking forward to asking him about tools that players can utilise, coaches can utilise, administrators can utilise to help cope with these times. And we're probably going to get some of the very best advice, experience and tips from Bert, drawing on all of the experience across sport over the last couple of decades. Sit back, enjoy. This is going to be great. I'm really looking forward to it. Let's dive straight in. Welcome, everybody. Uh, I'd just like to thank you all for coming along for another Pacific Rugby Players uh, educational workshop. We're privileged today to um, be talking about life after rugby, uh, transition, and dealing with uncertainty that the rugby world is throwing at our feet at the moment. Um, before I uh, introduce the man that we have as our special guest today, probably just a bit of background. Not that he probably needs much introduction. Gilbert Anoka um, has been mental skills coach and manager for the All Blacks for a long time, over 250 test matches. Started off working through Canterbury, the Crusaders, uh, New Zealand cricket, New Zealand netball, and a lot of uh, individual athletes across New Zealand, um, helping in the mental skills space and has been um, a key cog for the All Blacks uh, behind the scenes in terms of making sure that they are arriving on the pitch um, in the very best condition possible and we all know some of the results they have achieved. i tell you what, um, the first time that I met Gilbert uh, was actually a pretty unfortunate um, situation. It was all about crisis management, risk management, I don't know, make media frenzy, player welfare situation all in one and I got to see firsthand how calm uh, collected professional skills of Gilbert Onoka can really control a situation. Um, he provided fantastic direction and offered genuine athlete uh, support in that really sort of critical time. Um, Gilbert, thanks for joining us, mate. Pleasure. Kia um, Nice to be here and nice to uh, share some time with your communities. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, how's isolation life been treating you? Well, we, uh, interesting, really. You know, for my life has been the direct opposite of isolation, really, because you tend to, you know, when you're working with teams, you're flitting around the world from here, there, and everywhere. So parking up at uh, at a place is sort of kind of different. Um, I've sort of learned to live at home rather than just stay at home, and I've kind of liked that um, because my schedule involves touring around the world. If I'm not with teams, you're on speaking and doing that. Yeah home just becomes a little bit of a portal where um, you move in and out of. But having to live here and stay here while I'm cooking, I'm cleaning, I'm uh, 
um, you know, just sharing different moments with my whanau, which have been been awesome. And uh, in a lot of ways, it's taught me to live again and to love again in a lot of ways. So it's been terrific. Is there any uh, little nuances that you've learned about yourself um, while in lockdown? Um, well, I think when I've got time, I can do a lot of things and my mind's very busy. Um, I kind of... Um, I've kind of like, like, I'm an optimist anyway, so I tend to always look at the glass half full, but I kind of like the whole notion of, um, you know, that, that optimism, optimism is sort of an example where a lot of the world, the media and everything tries to pull you into worst case scenarios and those, but if you keep looking for the light and you keep, um, you know, especially if you've got children and that, and that around you and they can see you always saying there's a way out, there's something we can do. And by example, you can be optimistic. It's been powerful. Um, and the other thing I've probably learned is you, a lot of people say that it, uh, not directly for me, but it takes a village to raise a child and it takes a winery to homeschool. So it's been quite a new, uh, new example. I think you're quite right. You're quite right. The new people out there agree. Mate, before we dive into... Um talking about the, the mental challenges and the skills needed to deal with transition and so forth at the moment. I just want to probably, um, for people who don't know, just tap into how you got to where you are now. Um, the early days, you've been a key cog, like I said, behind the All Black Machine. Um, how did you, what was your pathway and how did you get into that role? Yeah, look, the, um, the history and the pathways um, of any journey tell a good story. So, um, my father was Rarotongan. He um, lived in Rara all his life, born there, um, moved to New Zealand later in his late 30s, met my mother, um, had six children in nine years, so they were busy, as a lot of our whanau are. Um, but he then went back to the islands, and um, my mother um, was challenged physically, so I wasn't able to look after us. So from the age of 18 months through to um, 12 years old, I spent time in an orphanage in in just out of Palmerston North and Martin actually, in Tutanui Road. So it was thirty with thirty other kids. Um, it was run by um, exclusive brethren. A great place, you know, like good people really cared for us. Uh, um, but you know, you just lack the the nourishing love that you get when you're with you know, Mafano with real family. Um, I I was brought up. Um, in that sort of state, basically thinking the world was made up of normal people and me. So, you know, to think that down the track um, that I'd end up being in a position of them was just the furthest thing from my mind. I, I left the orphanage at the age of 12, um, went to live with my mother who was in Palmerston North and she had um, met another man there and I had all these visions of going to this castle in the cloud. I liked Les Mis, the musical, and... I can still remember, um, you know, crying as I left the orphanage because that's the only place I knew. Driving up at um, at uh, in Broadway Avenue in Palmerston North, expecting the castle in the cloud, walking in there, and I had three brothers who'd been out of the orphanage for two years, so you can imagine how they were with their newfound freedom. And uh, stepfather was an alcoholic, and uh, was the whole unit was dysfunctional, so. The age of 16, I headed out of there. I said, oh, I've got to get out of here. Um, if I'm going to make anything, I've got to do it myself. So I got caught a bus to Wellington, caught the ferry down to Littleton. And I love sport. You know, I um, had an affinity with sport, um, particularly volleyball. So I started playing volleyball, um, did okay with that. Um, went to Teachers College down there because they used to pay you in those days a studentship so you could get enough to survive on and became a phys ed teacher. I went to teach at Hillmorton High School here in Christchurch, which was a, a lower decile school, but boy, the kids were awesome and the staff were terrific. On that staff was Lee Gibbs, who was uh, all, uh, well, sorry, Silver Fern captain um, and had moved into coaching. And so her and I, so I was playing volleyball at that time, so we started having lots of conversations and about how to improve and I was coaching and I wanted to get better started looking into the area of the mind. And then I, I became head of the physical education department there. And then one day, a guy from Canterbury Sports walked through the door to sell physical education equipment to schools, and that was Wayne Smith. So he walked through the door, 
and we sat down and he was selling me tennis rackets and badminton rackets and tennis balls and squash balls and all those things and then we started talking sport and um, he was way ahead of his time as you would know and so I started working with him while he was in All Black when he finished I started walking working alongside him um, in the area of sports psych mental skills just culture leadership development and and basically everywhere he went I held on to his shirt tail and he dragged me with him and uh, he went to the Crusaders, went there, went to the New Zealand Sevens, uh, went on to the All Blacks and started with him in 2000 with the All Blacks and have the privilege of being there still to this day. So, you know, the path was one of a military service type childhood, um, some opportunity that I had to take myself and then some luck in meeting two wonderful people, Lee Gibbs and Netball and Wayne Smith and rugby, which sort of laid a platform for me to be able to build my own belief and my capability to, to do anything I want, that the world um, gives you opportunity, but you have to seize it. And, and I was fortunate enough to get that. Bit of a long-winded answer, but it sort of gives you a bit of a feel for um, you know, what's created um, and powered the skill sets that I bring to the table, I guess. Yeah, 100%. I can see... Um the knowledge that you bring to these successful sporting teams is, is not about what you've learned through psychology, but also <coughs> passing on your life skills, and, and that's evident. Um, I'm interested in something you said there uh, around, I've got to get out of here at 16. Um, that there means that you have to then move into a really unfamiliar territory and moving out of your comfort zone. Um, a good segue into what I wanted to start asking you about uh, in the space of retirement and moving out of the game. Now, um, this is something that uh, Pacific Rugby players, um, Gaylene in Fiji, Marion in France, Junior in the UK, deal with players all the time as consideration for retirement. You would have come across a lot of players' conversations on the bus or the lobby around this particular subject. Um, can I just start off by um, your opinion on, on how a player could prepare for that really huge mental shift for themselves? Yeah, good question. You know, like it's... Um it's not one of those things that it's not an if question, it's a, it's a when question. So, you know, my, um, the All Black environments have been there 20 years, so you've seen people come and go and move through all these phases and the, the natural life cycle of a professional player, All Black anyways, that first year when they tend to move into that environment, they, it's gee whiz, it's wow, I can't believe it, it's been a boyhood dream. Um, and they get caught up a little bit like possums in the headlights and everything is fast and they get this fame and they get this notoriety and all this. And then years two and three, they tend to stabilise and settle into a little, a little bit more and to some degrees can get a little bit comfortable in it. And then when you get to four five and beyond, all of a sudden they could see the horizon and on the horizon is an exit door and they suddenly realise that, jeepers, this is, this is something that could finish. So... Um, and that, that's a that's a frightening realization for people um, in terms of what they do. But you know, once you once you understand that you look the truth straight in the eye, I think that's really important. That you know, we've learned um, that fear is not bad. You know, fear as long as you face it and you look it in the eye and you are comfortable about understanding the skill sets that are important. Um, you know, then you can navigate your way through it. Like I, I kind of like to tell people that your, your skill sets never work unless your mindset's right. So, you know, if you have your mindset around the fact that, yep, one day it will end for me this particular chapter, but I can prepare for it. And victory loves preparation. Um, if you wait until the gate opens and there's been no preparation, then um, you will struggle, you know. So um, I, I encourage people to get a next phase buddy so, you know, you look at even wherever you are and whatever you're doing, just sort of find somebody who you can have conversations with. You know, alone is hard, together is better, you know, and um, the Pacific Island community do that better than anybody anyway in terms of the everything shared. Um, and this is something that should be shared too. Um, I kind of, you know, the, the, the octopus has many tentacles, so... While you're playing, seven of them can be focused on the game and getting better. But one of those tentacles should always be looking in the direction of what is next for me, what's next for me so that I can keep my whanau secure 
I can get some income and those sort of things for there. The third, the third thing, um, I kind or the last thing in relation to that, it's not so much about what you do. I think it's to me, it's more of a who question. So I'd be, if I was a person out there, I'd be looking for who can help me the best to understand and prepare for that next phase. So um, I, I, I'd be encouraging people to to consider it as a who question rather than a what question. Like, um, you know, you can go online and, you know, you, 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 you Google something like leadership or anything like that and you get something like six billion hits, you know, and trying to find your way through that and look for the silver bullet just ain't there. But keep it simple, you know, uh, prepare for it, find a really good who and commit time to spend on on preparing for that phase. Just on that who, um, we've talked in some previous workshops. Um, there's a saying that you are the average of the five people you hang, you hang around with the most. Um, are you yeah. a believer in that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, like I, I kind of, um, myself personally, and I encourage people to start, only spend time with people that are good for your mental health. You know, you, you don't want to spend time with people who suck the life out of, you know, the sunshine, you know, to, to do that. So, you know, that's really, sometimes you can't, you know, you, you can't avoid it, but you have to manage the way you are with them. But um, most advancement in life um, can be connected to who, not what, in yeah. my view. Yeah, excellent. Um, we also discuss often um, the theory around identity foreclosure. Do you, do you come across, so what, what I mean by that is um, we are different people, we have different interests. I like playing guitar, I'm into the arts, I become a professional rugby player at 18 years old and then that's my life and often you forget who you were and then all of a sudden you're put into the situation of having to exit and find yourself again. Um, is that common? Have you, have you come across that a lot? Yeah, look, I think um, it is, it's sort of, when when you when you play professional sport like a lot of the men and women that um, that that are in your communities, the when you get good at it, you, you become idolised and adulated, and it becomes very um, difficult not to get caught up in in the glamour of all that. And when, when that happens, you're sort of building your identity from the outside in. So it's you know you love the attention, you love the exposure, um, you love the adulation, but Real, real sustenance, I think, comes from people that build themselves from the inside out, you know, and um, most of the Pacific uh, communities I kind of uh, been involved with, you know, they, um, the sense of whānau and family is huge, religion is huge, and they're powerful identities that need constant nourishment, and so, you know, making sure that you feed those while you're inside your little glamour bubble um, is important. Um, this particular period of time we're in is teaching us some new identities. Um, you know, vulnerable is the new strong. Mm. So when you're struggling, put your hand up, you know, lend an ear to those that may need it. Um, kindness is the new cool. So, you know, um, just having the time of day for people and, you know, connecting with them. Inner peace is the new happiness. And I think for a lot of athletes and that operating in the world, that's really important, you know, that, you know, that how I feel about myself and being at, and, and at one with myself is really, really important. So um, like most identities, unless you feed them, they'll wither. And um, I kind of, I kind of encourage athletes to consider it a bit like crossing a bridge. So um, if Aiden's on this side and he's got to cross the bridge to the other side, which is the length of time in your career, the bridge can be made up of lots of different planks or one plank. If you have just one plank and that's your rugby identity, um, when that really wobbles, then basically your whole self wobbles and everything around it, and quite often to the extent it can actually tip you over. But if you have, say, five or six different planks, so it's Aiden the father, Aiden the son, Aiden the brother, Aiden the uncle, Aiden the mate, and you feed those identities as you journey through your course, um, as a professional rugby player, woman or male, then then as one of those get challenges, you can still stay stable because the other identities enable you to to keep the ground solid in terms of what you're walking working on. And mm. I, I like the saying too that um, everyone has two lives, 
and that, that your second life begins when you realize that you've only got one. <laughs> and, and and quite often, you know, that happens when people finish playing rugby. They go, jeepers, you know, hold on a minute, you know. You know, what is important and, and how do I feed that? So I guess all of those those things feed into this big, they're like little rivers feeding this big lake which creates the individual that is experiencing life at this particular time. Yeah, brilliant um, and, and a great uh, analogy there, I thought. Um, thinking about, uh, we have often had discussions around transferable skills and I truly believe that rugby players and especially Pacific Islanders don't um, have a good self-awareness of their <coughs> skills that they build as athletes. Um, you would, you've had so many athletes um, in your career that you've dealt with in relationships and friends. Do you think that that's accurate and the ability to um, take the skills and habits and ethics that you learn in rugby and move them into, say, the working or corporate or business world? Yeah, like, um, if you're like me um, and, and a lot of people, I think quite often when you're in it, you don't see it. And, um, you know, you're, you're in a sports team and the team's been successful. And, but when you unpick it and, and part, of the, part of the opportunity for people is to get a really, really good of understanding of just what it is they're developing while they're journeying through this particular sports piece of their career. So let, let's say I, I can naturally think of five things that are transferable from sport. Um, say if I was going to look for a job and I wanted to sell myself, so this becomes important. So, you know, you, if you look at the whole area of performing under pressure, so you can tell an employer that, you know, I can work with time constraints, I can deliver in big moments, um, I can balance competing demands. Uh, my the history of my last period of time in doing this informs me and shows me that these are some things I can do. Um, I'm, I'm a good team person. I'm, I can work with others. Um, you know, I've developed um, methods of communication. I can lead when required. I can embrace diversity. I can challenge constructively. And so it's a matter of looking at these. I'm self-motivated. You know, um, the only person you're destined to become is the person you decide to be. So I want to be this person and I'm motivated to schedule activity to do that. So you give me a job to do and I'll get it done for you. Yeah, you can persevere through obstacles. So my, we win some, we lose some, but I can pick myself up and come again. Uh, I'm coachable. I, I, I can listen to instructions. I can learn. I can accept constructive criticism. So, you know, so it's a, I think it's very hard at times for us to see it. Um, and sometimes we just need to pull ourselves back and get somebody to, but a boy, a person that presents to me as an employer with that particular skill set, I'd be saying, when can you start? You know, because it's, it's an awesome um, transferable skills and we've got to pull them out of the pot and make sure that we, we bring them front and centre for people that we're getting in front of it. And it's not a natural thing for islanders to do at times too because they, they, they feel um, it's not being humble. And, um, and so what we have to do is we've got to be able to break through, you know, the, um, you know, those sort of dominance hierarchies when you get into boss, worker, that, you know, a lot of people can, can get managed and controlled and to, to really push ourselves forward. But um, I think um, you're quite right. As Polynesians, it's quite hard to write your, write your own CV and talk yourself yeah. up. You pretty much just did a good job. I bet you everyone's at home writing that down. Just wrote the whole first page of their CV, mate. That's outstanding. Yeah, but uh, but that but that's 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 not wrong. Uh, that oh. out. I look at you know the people that I've worked with and uh, um, and what what a lot of the what are the lot of the Polynesian people have got a, 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 a head of the European college is that sense of whānau, mm -hmm. you know, that sense of care and connection and responsibility to a wider group and. All of those sort of things are just, you know, that, that's what the world um, needs at the moment and it creates a really, really wonderful opportunity. I kind of like, you know, some people have gone into this, um, gone into the pandemic and all of a sudden there's doom and gloom and they say there's opportunity nowhere, if you think of that word, N-O-W-H-E-R-E. -E. But if you change your perspective and your mindset and you, you separate the letters W and H, 
you've got opportunity now here. So by shifting your perspective, you can say, well, what are the opportunities? Well, an opportunity for me to really look at how I can sell myself is opportunities for me. Like for me, it was to deepen my connection with my whānau because I was given opportunities. So, so it's a matter of perspective and mindset and, and enabling ourselves to search for the opportunities for that, the sunlight that exists in what a lot of people perceive as a dark room. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. And I can think of, um, personally, you've got certain groups of friends, um, as we said before, who are thinking that way, and there's other ones who have been optimists. And if you want to be in the right spaces, you need to be in those types of rooms. So um, we've just talked about, let's say, uh, we've got a player here. I don't know, someone like Tamari's here, realised that they've got great transferable skills. Um, they've just had your help with writing a CV. That's great. Um, but often a big hurdle for a player is fear. Um, just even fear about not just the bigger picture, but just in the moment. You may have a brilliant CV and know that you're fantastic. Um, I'm interested in asking um, from you to tap into your psychology skills, some tips for a player who may just have fear, whether it's first time in a boardroom, first time doing a job interview outside of rugby, or in any case. Yeah, like um, never be afraid of fear. You know, like if you if you um, if, if, if fear controlled us, if I, I look at it in this situation, like so, um, there's two there's two things competing for control in most situations, and one is the situation you're in. It's me having to go into a boardroom and sell myself to a group of individuals. It might be me on the sports field where I'm a, I'm competing against an opponent that is really really strong. It might be me dealing with something at home with the Fano, which is worrying me and challenging me it might be me in this pandemic at the moment where I can't see any opportunity anywhere. The other other part sort of um, me as an individual in the world. So these these two things always compete for control. It's a bit like a tennis match. You know, you, it's a five-step match and uh, the ball's going backwards and forwards. You're going to win some rallies. You're going to lose some. You're going to you're going to win some games. You're going to lose some. But if you if you imagine it as a five-step match, then the goal is to win the match. So the, 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 the key thing that we want to be able to do is we want to make sure that the situation does not become a bigger than me as the individual because if that happens, if me on a boardroom applying for a job becomes bigger than me, the individual, in that moment, I, I get into overwhelm, I get stuck. All I say is cheap as I want to get out of here and um, the situation controls me. But if I can keep myself bigger than the situation, so how do I make sure that I can keep myself bigger than the situation? Well, I need to do some preparation. I need to do some mock questions and answers. I need to stand up in front of a mirror or someone else and talk so I can get a little bit more courage in that moment. So the question uh, when you have a fearful moment is, are you dealing to the situation or is the situation dealing to you? And, and, and so... And a lot of that comes down to the courage you have to to look look the pressure situation in the eye, um, do smile at it, uh, do the work that enables you to feel confident that you've got the skill sets, lean into it, and then go for it. And um, if, if it shortens your breath and at times takes your breath away, that's normal. You can wobble, you can bend, you can get the jitters, you can be fearful and when you understand that it's okay to do that because it's part of being human, it frees you. But what you do, you bend, you buckle, but you just don't break. And um, that, that becomes the power behind um, the embracing of those fearful moments. And a kind of, if you're living a life and you're not having fearful moments, then you're not applying enough risk to your own particular existence and the trajectory you're on. So search them out and, and you know, make sure that you become the person that's controlling it rather than the other way around. Yeah, yeah. And, and adding to that too, Aidan, is um, don't do it alone. You know, the, the, everyone seems to think that this is just I've got to do this myself. No, you know, like a you know, alone's hard. You know, together is better. So find that right who and get that who who can prop you up and give you that support and tell you that you can do it. And uh, those people in your lives are, are like um, magic potions. 
Great. I was going to ask you about that next, actually, about picking yourself up off the floor, the resilience and overcoming those hurdles, because sometimes things do not go to plan um, and, and you have to do that. And what I'm hearing you talk about there is um, lean on the people that you trust and, and, and get help. Is there anything else in terms of advice you'd give to someone when it's... And, and often, um, it could be now, we've got players across the world, mate, who um, have played their last game of rugby and they didn't know. And, and the contract's finished and they're trying to work out how they get back to New Zealand or to the islands. Um, so they're on the floor. Um, yeah. Yeah, like, and, and you know, that's that's the reality. There's people in all, all walks of life in that same endeavour. And um, again, it becomes an understanding. And so you hear the word resilience used a lot. It's a big word. I have a lot of trouble spelling it. So I just sort of try and define it as being tough, you know, being able to, um, navigate your way through tough times, you know, which is like you're talking about. So one of the things about this word resilience is is that you never possess it or own it. So all you can do is show it or exhibit it. So it's fluid, so it comes and goes. That's why some days you'll get exposed to a situation and you'll handle it beautifully. It just comes in, you just deal with it. The next day you get the same situation and you can blow your top. You know, we, we know that in relationships and our own personal relationships with people. Where did that come from? And so once you understand that you don't sort of possess resilience, you're only exhibitor and it's very, very fluid, then we need to be able to spend time working on it. I have three strategies I think that are important for, for people to do that. Um, and, and the first one is is that resilient people get that shit happens. You know, that no, it doesn't discriminate. And um, it's not a matter about why me. It will be me at some stage. So, you know, the once you understand that, then, you know, and you welcome it as part of life, that, you know, there won't be one person on this call um, that if we ask them about an event that has caused them pain and whether it be in relationships and sport and job and, you know, losing loved ones, I think uh, every single person on the school will have experienced it. So once you, you, you understand and get that mindset, um, the second thing is that resilient people are good at determining where they put their attention. So they can make a choice of um, dwelling on things that are going to, that they can control rather than, sinking into a pit of things that they can't, um, you know, hunting for the good stuff, you know, benefit finding, what am I grateful for? Yep, I've got, uh, I seem to have a closed door in this particular area of my life, but um, these things are going well, and so we can look at that. And um, I kind of, the, you know, if you think about uh, when you're in tough situations, you think certain things, you act in certain ways, and, and, and you, you know, exhibit certain behaviours. And so if you can just ask yourself in the moment is, what I'm thinking helping me or hindering me? Is what I'm doing helping me or harming me? And in a moment, it can change your mindset into something different. How I'm acting, is that helping me or harming me? I'm walking around home moping, snapping at the kids and the partner. Is that helping me or harming me? And, you know, so in that moment, I'm looking to take control of, of what I actually do. So, so that, that, that sort of three strategies. I think the other thing to do is to, I, I encourage people to put in stabilizing structures. And I'd be wanting them, um, you know, just hearing Gailene talk about the challenges um, in Fiji for our, our sisters and brothers over there, you know, and, and what they're doing to, you know, to just to, keep them strong and connected is awesome. The stabilizing structures, so what I do to help me manage the challenges that exist at the moment is I do, I kind of think of things for my body, for my mind and for my heart. So Nick Gill, our trainer, has given us all a, um, a training schedule. I find it quite hard because I think he's forgot that I'm, I'm over 60, but uh, I still do it, and it's kind of good. You're out there doing a Bronco in the streets of Christchurch. Oh, no, no. Broncos are long gone for me. <laughs> <laughs> when you're trying, when he's asking you to do as many press-ups as possible, I've got to say, you've got to be kidding me, son, you know? <laughs> so, you know, you do that. Then for my mind, I'm in my study here at home, um, and I just pull the curtains. I bought another cheap heater, 
so I can heat this room up to about 30 degrees, and I do Bikram yoga, because I, um, I love it, because it stills my mind, and that's good for my mind, and uh, for my heart, well, I'm, you know me, Aiden, I'm a sportaholic, and I love it, but there's no sport, so I've series linked all the quiz shows, the chase, uh, tipping point, um, cash trapped, who wants to be a millionaire, so, and I schedule them as appointments during my day, so I can go in there, I sit down for 50 minutes and watch a chase, not feel guilty, but because uh, it's good for my heart. So the combination of looking after my body, my mind, and my heart helps keep me strong and stabilizes me to be able to meet the demands that come at me from a world that's in a very heightened state of anxiety. And I think it was Nelson Mandela that said the combination of a, a good heart and a strong mind makes a formidable combination. And, I think you know the wise man that he was was absolutely true. So hopefully there's something in there that that people yeah. could pick up on. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully they like the chase. I've got oh. plenty of episodes. <laughs> who's your, who's you um who's your, who do you rate as the, the sharpest chaser? Um, I've always thought Sean was actually you know, but, but I mean you see like everyone they all stumble and but Blim and Heck they're um they're terrific. Their knowledge is unbelievable. Yeah, they're sharp, mate. They're sharp. Yeah. You said sharp as a bowling ball, lady. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you said something before, which I know is a motto used a lot lately in the All Blacks about leaning into the pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to divert a little bit here and get a bit more specific about your time in the All Blacks because I'm sure everybody's interested to know. Um, victories in 211, 215, um, and then um, it not going quite so well last year. Um, leadership, decision-making in the heat of the battle. Um, you got anything to share? You've probably reflected a lot um, since Japan. Um, anything to share in that sort of space? Yeah, look, you know, you, as we all know, you take nothing for granted in, 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 the, in this arena that we work in. Um, you know, 207 was a watershed moment for the All Blacks because we understood that um, when it came to the crunch matches, we didn't have the skill sets to be able to navigate our way through pressure and I was part of that problem it was I looked cold and hard at myself and said that this is my area and um, I haven't provided the players the coaches with the skill sets that are required to help them navigate their way through it so um, I embarked on I embarked on a lot of work myself to um, you know talk to individuals to helped me get better, to get better understanding so that we could then transfer that to the athletes. And and obviously we went through 2011 and we did terrifically well. We, and in a lot of ways, we, 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 we hung on to get there really with the one point. When um, 2.15, we still we, we went on and we basically had a more dominant performance through the tournament to, although a lot of people sort of forget how close that semi-final was, against South Africa, which we only won because Sam Whitelock stole a couple of line-outs on, the, on our goal line, which um, probably saved our grace. And then, then obviously coming to 2015, and the thing that kept me asleep or kept me awake at night was the fact that no one in our playing group had experienced the pain of 2007. And, um, you know, you can, you can expose people, you can tell them intellectually about... You know, you, this is different. You've got to understand it's different. But until you've emotionally experienced or been to some of those dark places and you feel the pain of it, it doesn't connect with you at a place that really engenders a deep sense of understanding of what it takes to get things done. So in, in 2015, we played France in the quarterfinal and had a brilliant game, won 60-odd to 15 or so. And then only just snuck in against South Africa and then um, beat, obviously, Australia. 2-11, we had a pretty well similar game, brilliant game against Ireland in the quarterfinals. And then after that, everybody, you know, because none of those guys had experienced the pain, you didn't have Richie or Ma'a or Conrad um, or any of these guys saying, boys, you've got to understand this is different. You know, that's gone. Tomorrow's gone. You've got to know what's coming at you. So... Um, we had a poor week. Well, poor, you know, we had a pretty good Rugby World Cup bar the England game, to be fair. You know, we produced some terrific rugby. The, the, the camaraderie and connection was awesome. Definitely. But we, we just, you know, in the moments, England were better. Um, we didn't handle the pressure that well in, the, in, in those big moments. 
you know, they suffocated us a little bit. And um, the thing that kept me awake at night was the thing in the end that this current crew, um, you know, we Steve was pretty keen to get the group in front of their reality. So we were pretty well in front of a screen the next day watching the whole game again, uh, mainly because you know, he was saying, I won't be here in 2023, but a lot of you will be, and I don't want you to forget this pain. And so whilst it was hard and there were tears and um, we had to look the truth in the eye to do it, um, there's been something embedded in that group of men that will feed them well for uh, battles that will come in the future. But how could we, would I have loved to have won it? Hell yeah. And uh, um, it was, you know, that's reality. Nothing's given, a given in this game that we all love. Um, I'm, I'm interested to know, um, in the heat of the battle, you talked about not handling the the, the boys weren't handling the pressure that well, um, and you knew that the, that England was strangling you. Um, how do you overcome that right then? Did you realise it, or was it not till post game? I would imagine that you you could see it happening in front of your eyes, and then we're trying to work out how you mitigate that. Yeah, like it's um, it's chicken and egg thing, really, Aiden too, because you know um, if you haven't prepared for the scenarios that may um, confront you then quite often when they are, when you do confront them in the moment, it's too it's too late. You can't catch up. The mental catch up is, is too difficult. You know, you all of a sudden you you get it and you get, wow, this is coming at me, how do I get out of it? But I hadn't had that deep connection down there, but what if this happens and what if this happens and what am I gonna where am I gonna go to? Who am I gonna talk to? And you know, one of the, the beautiful things about Everything that's done in there is like, and the leader's preparation is, Richie in particular, was very, very strong on, I don't want any situation to occur on that field that I haven't thought of um, beforehand. I want to know what I want to say, how I want, how my body language is going to be, um, you know, what I want to think, um, who I want to bring together to connect with. So, because, you know, like we went through in Japan, we played, um, Ireland and paid brilliantly so and normally we move hotels after that we didn't because we stayed there so everyone was saying gee you guys are awesome and all the players were strutting around and, you know getting the pats on the back and doing all that sort of stuff now it happened to England the following week to be fair yes. you know, they, they paid against us everyone was going slap on the back you women beauties and all that and then all of a sudden out of nowhere came South Africa and did the same so the short answer to your question in, in my view, unless you do the work Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and you embed that in, it will not be there come Saturday. Yep, preparation, exactly what you're yeah. talking about. It's smart, it's smart preparation. Sometimes intellectually you think you're doing it, you but if you don't drill it really deep down, it, it won't be there. You're getting into some Michael Jordan stuff there, mate. We could start talking about some last dance. Sort of oh, I haven't, haven't seen that, but I hear it's pretty cool, is it? Oh, yeah, you definitely need to get that in um, terms of... Yeah. That man as a high performer. Hey, we've got Webby online. He's got a great question, actually. Um, he's yeah. interested to know your opinion around whether um, professional sports people, rugby, um, have become institutionalised and we've created that bubble around them too early. Um, and that probably, I think what he's saying is doesn't give you the life skills for afterwards. A bit like happens in the armed forces where they've struggled with people re-entering back into life. Do you think um, that especially here in New Zealand, they talk about the first 15 games being on TV. It starts to get to the guy's head too early and then it's just rugby, rugby, rugby. Do you think that's true? And do you think we probably need to fix that up a little? Yeah, like I think it's, um, it's a great question and it's one that I've heard people talk about. Um, how, you know, you can't be, it's, it's, you can't be human if you're not impacted by, you know, you've got scouts nowadays looking at under 10s, 12s, trying to identify talent to pull into a bubble of um, control, I guess, a little bit contractually so that they can actually market this product um, down the track. Um, I think it will be impossible not to be caught into that bob the bubble where all of a sudden um, your, your family, your whanau is provided for in a way that was different. So therefore there's other different constraints. So you've got to keep doing this because that increases and the pressures come into it. Um, the good programs, you know, like it's, uh, I'm still a great believer in um, it's all about people and, you know, the, the leaders generate the environment that you operate in. And so it's not right at the top, it's unwinnable down below. So, 
you want to get, have you got a good leader that understands that and how do we actually ensure we don't get people institutionalised and we, we get them out of their bubble and I kind of like there's, you know, there's lots of different sort of ways in which you can actually do that. But I think that, um, again, it's how do we keep the individual in control of aspects of their life so that they don't actually be totally influenced by by others that actually can control it. I think he's right. I think he is right. Um, if you're aware of it, you can then sort of strategize to, you know, to break three from some of those constraints. But hey, some people, they get a lot more opportunity by being inside that bubble than they would if they weren't. They do. They do. Yeah. And then it's about making the most of that, I guess. That's right. Uh, another good question coming, mate. Um, so mental skills, is it uh, simply a matter of that um, building resilience, building mental mindset over time, or is it something that you truly have to practice, 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 um, so that it comes to the fore in the heat of the moment? Yeah, like it's... Uh, you know, that, that's another great question too, because... Um, when I first started in this area with Wayne Smith back in the, you know, the early 90s and that sort of thing there, the, the whole mental skills area was considered um, a sort of an ugly duckling that if you have to do some work on yourself mentally, then you're weak, you're soft, you're a pussy. You know, they were the sort of words that, that people did. But, but nowadays, like, you know, if you think of the question you asked me is, do, do, if you want to be strong mentally, do you have to work on it? Well, if you want to be strong physically, do you have to work on it? So if you want to improve your bonco, you've got to go out and work on intervals. If you want to improve your ability to um, get stronger in your upper body, then you commit to three times a week um, going to the gym and working on it. And there's a perception that it's easy to sweat and that training only occurs when you sweat. Um, I kind of think this is a, a wonderful opportunity because there's so much emotional distress. We need people to get structures in place to help them tolerate the, the degree of that. So why wouldn't you have a, a deliberate program which is um, directed to help me and my ability to perform better under pressure? Um, you know, I want to actually look at how I can leverage um, in different skill sets I kind of like. We use a model, a mindset, skill set, structure model. So, you know, that, that in rugby and advancing myself, I, you know, we get everybody who is awesome and wants to be a great All Black and they can get the mindset right. They come in and they have this terrific skill set. Like, I think the Polynesian sisters and brothers have uh, been blessed with more talent than um, their, 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 their Palangis in and around. Um, and then, so you've got this desire to be the best you've got the skill set and then in, in you come structure is so okay how do I organize my day so I can feed it I can fit in my training I can fit in um, and work with the time with the whanau and the kids upskilling myself doing media doing promos and 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 then quite often things can collapse amidst because they haven't got the structure right you know so um there's that component. That's that's a mental skill aspect of planning and preparing. And then there's how do I ensure that I can deliver in those big moments that you know we teach our people that you um, don't have to be at your best every moment in a game of rugby, but by crikey, you've got to be at your best when the best is needed so that there'll be some critical moments where the outcome of that game is determined by how I deliver in that moment. And the great people want to identify those moments they want to ensure they've got the skill sets to deliver in that moment and then they can lean into it and say, bring it on, baby, um, I'm ready. And um, yeah, so the short answer is, why wouldn't you apply the same disciplines? You know, I, I want my athletes to be physically fit and mentally fit. So we need, don't go, it's not everything, don't get me wrong. Sure. It's not, it, it's just got to be kept in context. You know, it's some of it, not all of it. It's probably good. Is the best way to. It's beautiful. Uh, what I heard there, the false perception that training is only when you sweat. Um, yeah. It's that's uh, brilliant. It's brilliant. You also said in there you use the word leverage. Now questions come in that sort of links to that. Um, earlier on, you talked about your connections with Lee Gibbs, um, Wayne Smith, um, and you jumped on the coattails and your ability to leverage off that. Now, um, in past weeks and other workshops, we've actually talked about. Um, leveraging, networking, and when you are inside that rugby bubble, the huge opportunity that is in front of you to get yourself um, to scaffold to new levels. Um, 
Got any advice on that in terms of how people can best utilise that and, and maybe you have yourself? Yeah, like, that's a great question. You know, I think, you know, to um, what I have, um, I have what I call a five second rule. Okay, so in the five second rule, it's backed up in, a, in, a, in, in psychology actually, is that if you get an impulse, so if you think something, so you walk into a room and you see, Richie McCaw over there and you say, Jesus, I'd like to ask him that question or I wouldn't mind if he'd do that. Now, if you don't act on that impulse within five seconds, then you pull the emergency brake and you don't do it. And so what we want to do is that um, if you can finish, say, this this particular um, Zoom call, you know, and finish it and you you can go out and you can say, cheapers, Gilbert, when he talked about who being really important, and that when I get off, I'd love to ask this person this question or to do that. Then uh, what I'd be saying is think of the five-second rule and make sure you do one or two of those every day. So you get an impulse, act on it. Get an impulse, act on it. Get an impulse, act on it. And, you know, the worst thing that can happen is people will say no and it will be no different to you not even doing it. And um, so it's pushing yourself forward to embrace the opportunities that, that do present and um, you know that, that you know I I I was lucky, um, and you know people in their life um, get different forms of luck. So I was lucky when I met Wayne Smith. You know I was lucky when I went I went to Christchurch at 16. I was too young, very riskful, had a lot of luck in there. But to me, it's about your return on luck. Um, so you've got people at the moment on this call who are uncertain about their future so that's tough luck so what's the return you're going to get on it right I'm going to build my capability to promote myself to look at other opportunities that's getting more return on bad luck so it's not so much the luck that happens it's the return that you actually get on it and so we need if people can embrace that as a mindset and then think about right who can help me with that right I'm thinking about doing that's right pick the phone up and say, have that conversation. Thinking about this, can you help me? You know, I'd love you to do this. Worst they can do is say no or not, but I can't, I, I tell you, you'll get 90% of them, buddy, will, will pull into your slipstream and get right beside you. Yeah, great advice, Bert. Oh, I think that's fantastic. Um, as we start to, I want to hold you up, mate. Um, we, as we start to wind it down a bit, um, just to ask you about, you know, you, you've had a long career in the space, mental skills coaching, managing the All Blacks. Um, there must have been some huge, not only wins on the field, but just real satisfying moments for you personally. Um, I'm interested in that. Like, do you have any examples of, of uh, probably um, situations that people would not know about or that were significant for you um, mm. and knowing that you, you're doing a good job? Yeah, good, um, yeah, good, good question, really. Um, hey, I think uh, a big moment was, as I mentioned, was meeting Smithy. And, um, you know, amazing how much the who comes into your world, isn't it, when you think about it? Like, if you, if you think of your life and you think of the, how it's turned and how it's moved, most often you'll attach it to a who. So kind of that's kind of cool. There was a, um, a realisation more than an event. So, um, and I'll, I'll tell you a little story, and it's a story about an evolutionary biologist named William Muir who wanted to study how he could improve the production of um, teams. How, how could he make teams more productive? Yes. And so what, he, he studied chickens. So it's easy because, you know, a chicken that's more productive lays more eggs. You know, it's nice and easy, simple for me. I like that understanding. So what he did is he got these chickens and they laid these eggs for six generations. And after six generations, he got the, the chickens that laid the most, he put them over into another group. So he ended up having two groups. He sort of had these super, a super flock over here, and he had the average chickens. And he let them reproduce for another six generations to see what happened. So you've got your average flock and you've got your super flock. So after six generations, well, what had happened? The, the average flock, they were fully feathered. Actually, they were, they were blooming and fluming. They, they had meat. They had very, very plump, and their egg production had gone up like that. And it was just amazing. Within the super flock, well, when you looked at the super flock, there was only three left. They'd um, pecked all the others to death. 
And um, and so, you know, the only way that they could maintain their productivity was to suppress the productivity of those around them. Wow. So when, when, when I started with the Crusaders back in 1997 with Smithy, they were a super flock. When we started with the All Blacks with Smithy back in 2000, they were a super flock. And so once we understood that successful teams need everybody and that... Um, that super chickens can blossom and do as long as they don't suppress the productivity of the others. And if they do, you, you, you get rid of them and they're gone. And so a significant understanding was that. Um, and I think, you know, in those days, you know, people in the call will know you, you had court sessions and all that where you just, you know, you, they were challenging. They were, <laughs> to put it mildly, um, but they were fun, but humiliating for lots of people and, and they, that was full of dysfunction and all that. So, you know, uh, I think that that's a, a pretty big one for me. And it's been a philosophy from that we've maintained that the legacy is far more intimidating than any opponent you'll ever play. And as long as you never think you've arrived, um, in the moment you think you have is the time that you, you'll stand still. They become underpinning philosophies that guide the way in which, you know, that I like to work with individuals and teams um, that I work with, and because no one's more important than anyone, uh, we're in this together. And um, you know, the sense of Fano family uh, is something we share together, both the pleasure and the pain. Yeah, yeah, nice. It uh, sort of alludes to that that um, no ticket policy that we've talked about um, a little bit in, in the past, mate. Really, just short, sharp question. This one, um, which I'm really interested, it's coming. Um, any advice that you've received before that you didn't listen to but wish you had? Too many. <laughs> I think age um, um, wises you up a little bit. Um, you know, the, the, probably one of the one of the um, earliest pieces of advice that I had is that one day it's, it will be over. You know, when you're young and you're playing and the world's just giving you everything you want, you think you're bulletproof and you think it'll never end. And I think I, I lived in that bubble and, and, you know, several people that were on the edge of it sort of said, well, one day this will finish. Ah, it doesn't matter. I'll have had enough. And I would have been, I've loved it. But I mean, it still stands true to me as sort of, you know, you've got to make sure that in the moments that you're in that you're getting the most out of it so that you don't, when you do look back, there's no regrets. And, and there was certainly a piece that I, I heard but didn't hear, you know, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Listen to it, but didn't hear would be would be one. Yeah, definitely. Um, back to um, the time in the All Blacks uh, and a little bit to the, the fantastic culture that you have been central to developing. Um, the change in professional <coughs> talked about the shift from 207. Uh, question from Gaylene there, which I'm, I think I probably know the answer, but the All Blacks they still use a, have a have a court session. Uh, and and how do you if not? Um, how do you replicate that? Because I'm sure there's lots of people involved in professional teams here that would be interested to know. Yep. So um, the last court sessions the All Blacks had were in, t in 2004. So we've never had one since. Uh, we've developed other structures inside the All Blacks that enable us to get the release that those court sessions give because in those days what happened it was pressure, 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 built up, 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 built up. Played the game, still built up. And then then all of a sudden, everyone would look forward to the court session afterwards and then push, and look out. There was carnage everywhere. And it stuck home with me one day where we were, I can't remember what country we were in, and I saw three or four players in the corner on the day of a test match. I wandered over there to see what they were doing. And we were playing, I can't remember the country we were playing, but they were planning the court session for after the, the test match, on the day of the test match. And then I said, well, something ain't right here, son, <laughs> to do that. But, I mean, we have, to, we have to provide opportunities and avenues for people to decompress. We've got to teach them how to do that. And we've, we've, we've learned that it's not one big thing like the, the court session we... You know, we look, we, we look at those stabilising structures that you can do, but we have a sort of a club night where people come in and we have a club captain and we have fun. Guys can have a couple of beers. There's certainly no, you know, no beer stuff, but, I mean, we want to teach them self-discipline and 
to moderate that. We don't want them to drive it all into a culture of secrecy. You can have a couple of beers and enjoy it. Just don't have 10, you know. Yeah. So, and, that, and that's the sort of culture we want. Yeah, brilliant. Um, and, mate, just before we finish off, um, what about yourself and your own personal development? Um, you, you read. Um, what sort of books could you recommend to people that, that you quite like um, in this uh, high-performance sort of space, um, podcasts, or, or whatever you do? Yeah, like, um, I get that question asked a lot. And when I was a younger, burgeoning person who was thirsty for knowledge in the area of sports psych, I read every book, travelled the world, and... Um, Went to many conferences. I still remember the late Laurie O'Reilly. People might know him on this call. I remember when I was first started um, in this quest, I was just, it was my wife and I, we just only on a teacher's salary. So we were just going week to week. And I wanted to go to this conference in Portugal. And he said, well, got his checkbook out. They did have them in those days. Wrote me a check, gave me that and said, well, all I'll ask is you bring back the knowledge and let me know what it's done. So I had a huge thirst for that. But then, once I got inside the all-black environment, I found that whenever I read a book, it was tending to be following what the needs were for us in our immediate environment. So I kind of, um, the books that have had the biggest impact on me, there's um, Good to Great from by Jim Collins, I think. Uh, that, that, that's a great book, and the principles are very, very applicable to sport. There's a book um, called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lencioni. Um, I kind of like that. It's simple. It's practical. I don't like all the theory. You know, there's too much theory in this area. You know, if you get somebody in front of you that that's just giving you theories, just push the eject button. Wrong who? Get them out. Get her or him out. Um, and uh, it's got to be. You know, I've always said the therapist is more important than the therapy. So who you got delivering? It's more important. So I'm like most people. I'll, I'll something will come up that'll interest me. I'll have a bit of a read. On, on TV, listen to a bit of a podcast, but it's it's the what happens between those two points where I find the magic. So I, I don't, I'm not a prolific reader. I still, um, particular people I'll, I'll just listen to from various time to time, but most of the time I'm guided by the requirements of the environments I am, I'm in and get inspired by the people that I meet and work in those places. Well, outstanding. Um, I'm getting a good understanding is into what shapes you, mate, what drives you. Um, I just probably just want to thank you for your time um, as we wind down here. There's so many things that have jumped out of this, uh, just for me personally. You're talking about your next phase, buddy, um, that it's important about the who, not so much the what. Um, kindness is the new cool, even. Uh, interesting that you talked about a lot, um, te whare tapawha and the importance of body, mind, and your heart for you. I think uh, there's a lot of lessons in there for everybody. And just uh, in general, the... Uh, the words of wisdom that you've passed on um, to all of us around a little bit of resilience and, and dealing um, in different situations. Any last words from you, mate? Oh, look, it's just a privilege to um, spend time with your community. Um, and, you know, my life has been a tapestry of lots of different experiences and, and I hope that there's some things in there that people may put into their own and to do that. But, I mean, it'd be kind of cool for you to close us out with a prayer and uh, do things right for the community and and thank you once again. Yeah, um, Gilbert, I also want to say um, best of luck um, for, for yourself and in the next sort of stage. It's a um, interesting time for everybody uh, in the rugby world mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and you're part of that and you're central to it. So um, the people who are important for us um, in shaping what's going to happen next across uh, New Zealand rugby, Pacific Island rugby and world rugby are people like yourself. So um, best luck for you too personally. Um, can I make one comment on that too, Aidan? It's like really, really important that when there's so much uncertainty that you can quite often spend a lot of time hoping all the time and you, you look ahead and what's going to happen. It's better, like I kind of, and in our world of sport, you, you people know it, playing it is that because our week's normally uncertain whenever we play because we don't know what we're going to do next week because of the result we play on Saturday. So navigating point to point's the key. So... We're here now on Friday, what is it, the 15th of May. When, you know, what, where's my certainty point? Where's that up to? So once you're in there, just navigate that and do the best in that and prepare yourself there, then get the next point. That's how the way you, you, I'd, been, I'd be approaching this particular journey. Um, um, thank you, mate. I, I really appreciate it. To everybody uh, online, thanks for joining us. Um, it's been 
a fantastic chat um, and we've had lots of participants uh, and also I, I think um, looking forward we've got another week of um, workshops lined up from Pacific rugby players where people like Gilbert um, will be along to pass on their knowledge. Mate, thank you very much. I hope you have a good day down there in Christchurch um, and, and really appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you, everybody. Maitake, Mata. Yep. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for joining us on today's show. Check out PacificRugbyPlayers.com and follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter to stay on top of all news relating to Pacific Rugby Players and to find out when we drop our next episode of PRP Radio.